You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Okay. We're starting our new series. We started last week. We're in the first, or second, message, first few messages. And it's, uh, as Tom mentioned last week, it's going to be a long series. It's one of the Gospels, Gospel of Luke. It's uh, a long book. It's one of the accounts of Jesus' life. We learn about uh, this man who came in and divided history, changed history forever. Um, As we landed last week at the beginning of this series, Tom helped us to see that Luke is a a meticulous historian. He's a doctor. He's a trustworthy um, researcher. And uh, it's it's worth investing time, energy, effort, to researching who is this man. As we looked at last week, this man who dominates and changed history. The most culture-defining man who has ever lived. Our dates, our names, even in this room, my name is Timothy Luke. My name wouldn't be Timothy Luke if it wasn't for this man. There are about 400 Marks in our church. (laughs) They wouldn't be called Mark if it wasn't for this man. There's Sarah's and Hannah's and Paul's and these names would not be uh, used if it wasn't for this man and his followers. The names of our streets, the names of cities. We've got very St. Edmunds nearby. That wouldn't be called that if it wasn't for this man and one of his followers. Architecture, science, languages, education, healthcare social justice, our moral conscience, it would all be completely different if it wasn't for this man that has shaped history. I just wanted to recommend this book to you on that, on that subject. Who is this man? A book by a man called John Ortberg. It's really fascinating, easy read, and it looks into the impact that Jesus has had historically on the world. And the subtitle is The Unpredictable Impact of the Inescapable Jesus. And it's unpredictable because, as it says on the back, on the day of Jesus' death, it looked like whatever small mark he left on the world would rapidly disappear. Instead, his impact on human history is unparalleled, as we've just said, with all of those things that his life has touched. So that's a great book. I'd recommend it to you. It will encourage your faith, and it will amaze you to think the impact that he has had that we take for granted. That's what this series is about. We're looking at the life of this man who has completely uh, interrupted history and changed it forever. And we start today in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. And we see an account of not Jesus yet, but a man called Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 5. If you've got your little gospel, if you just grabbed one, you're just on page 2. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to be with us to be God with us as we worship you. We thank you for your presence by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you warm our hearts. You remind us of your goodness. You remind us of your love for us. You remind us of your promises. And we call them to mind, Lord. Your steadfast love never ceases. We thank you so much for your word that teaches us about you. And we pray today, Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus. Help us to be impacted. Help us to know faith rise, that our hearts would settle on Jesus, that burdens would fall away, that doubts would be overcome by the love of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So, as we've just heard, and as everyone is thinking about at the moment, Christmas is upon us, and um, I wonder what that's like for you. I wonder whether you, you really look forward to it, and it comes to September, and you're thinking, come on, where are the lights? Where are the songs? Uh, or maybe you're one of those people who's like, it's only October, and I can already hear you know, the carols in, the, in Aldi, and I, can, I don't like it. And uh, maybe you're a bit of a Scrooge, or maybe you're somebody who, who loves it, and you look forward to it. And uh, the thing I love about this is that you can't deny there's a sense of anticipation all around us. We know, in fact, all around the globe, there will be anticipation. In a month's time, Christmas is coming. It even brings us as a nation to a bit of a standstill. Everyone is celebrating. Everyone is making plans to see family and friends, organizing travel, putting up their trees, buying presents, wrapping presents, putting the lights up. Lights went up in uh, Ipswich this week. It's a time of anticipation, a time of the arrival of Christmas. And it reminds me every time, obviously, of Jesus and the arrival of Jesus. That's what it's all about. So, we're looking today at this moment in history where this actually took place for the first time. The arrival, the first coming of the Messiah into our world. 
the final moments of preparation for the coming of God, the Savior, into his creation. The architect into his creation to put on human flesh. The focal point of all human history is where we find ourselves in the story. This is from Genesis 3 right through the Old Testament. A promised coming to God's people. Promise was made and more promises added to it that described this coming saviour. Hundreds of years before, he was well documented and described and prophesied about. A king born to a virgin. This is one of the promises. A perfect, righteous deliverer. These things foretold hundreds of years before. 700 years before he was born, it was prophesied he would be born in Bethlehem. That he would perform the exact miracles that he performed of opening eyes and getting the lame up to walk. And that he would perform those exact miracles. And you know what? 700 years before he was born, it was prophesied that he would be crucified before crucifixion even existed. And it was prophesied that he would rise again from death. But we come into the story at a moment where it's been 400 years since man since God's people have heard from him. There's been silence for 400 years. In fact, the Old Testament ends with a book, I wonder if any of you know it, Malachi. Well done. It ends with the book Malachi, a book where God is seen speaking to his people and, and trying to love them and trying to pour out his grace on them, trying to give mercy to them. And as has been the story throughout human history, God's people argue back. And they question and they doubt. God exposes a corrupt people and he confronts their corruption. And they despise him and they reject him. He attempts to love them and give them grace. And they even accuse him of neglect. They accuse him of injustice. And when God calls them to repent and turn back, they basically say, it's not worth it. Because you let the wicked people thrive. So what's the point of following you? Again and again, people respond to their God without fear, without reverence, breaking his heart, provoking his anger. This God who's desperately, I want to love you. Will you let me love you? And they reject him again and again. And yet at the end of Malachi, the last thing that we've heard from God for 400 years, it does talk about a remnant of people who will continue to hold on to the promises of God and follow him and honor him. And it says he gave them grace. He will give them grace. So that's what's the last thing that's happened. 400 years ago, last thing that people have heard from God. And in comes Gabriel 400 years later. And he's quoting Malachi. He says, behold, I will send you Elijah. Well, this is actually from Malachi. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is what... Gabriel is quoting, he's saying, this is, this is it, this is the fulfillment, this is the time that was prophesied about. This is the promise of God coming about. This is the arrival. This is what mankind has been waiting for. This is what the host of heaven has been waiting for. Everyone is poised and waiting. Here we go, here we go. Thousands of years coming to a head, coming to a point. And here's Zechariah and Elizabeth, a pretty insignificant couple. Just trying to faithfully follow God, churchgoers, you know, believers. But actually their righteousness, their blamelessness is actually a pretty big deal. They are quite insignificant, yeah, they're just your average person. But 
the way that they have kept blameless before God is a big deal because it was completely abnormal. As we just saw, even 400 years ago, God's people had turned their back on him. They weren't listening. There's, there's only a small remnant of people who are still sticking to what God has called them to do. Their hearts are inclined towards God. They're abnormal. They're not like the rest of the people around them. They're keeping God's law. They're determined we will honor him. Pretty impressive. It's pretty amazing. And, and you may be maybe someone who thinks, I feel a bit like that at work. Or I feel about that in my household. I, I feel like I'm trying, God. I'm trying. And I don't feel like I've got really much around me that's encouraging me with this. And then we, we think about this. They weren't blessed with children. Even though they were these people saying, God, we, we're determined to honor you. We're determined in the face of a culture and a people who have rejected you to honor you. God still seems to withhold from them. That's got to be hard to understand. It must have been so difficult for them. They just love, and, and actually in their culture, there, there could well have been judgment upon them from others that would have thought, well, you, there's some reason you haven't got a child. God's looking down on you. Wow, that must have been so hard for them. And that can be, as we saw in our Joseph series, that can be something that we often go through. I thought I was I'm really trying to honor you, God. I'm trying to do things your way. And yet things don't seem to don't really work for me. Life's difficult. And they could easily have used this as an opportunity to shake their fist at God. Accuse him of failing them. We're keeping our end of the bargain up, God. What about you? Come on. Follow through. But this righteous and blameless couple, they keep a clear conscience and they say they are people that fear God. They remain blameless. They actually, they see God as big. That's going to be one of the themes we're looking at today. They see God as big, not as a God that they could irreverently start blaming for things. Accusing and saying, well, you're not doing it my way. This isn't fair. This is why I followed you, so that I would get my way. You're not doing it. No, they understand he's still God and he doesn't come into debt with people. We can't put God in our debt. We're not storing up credit when we follow God. When we do things the way he's called us to do them, it's not for a return. It's not so, I will do it this way so that God will owe me. So that I can get him in my debt. No, actually, I'm doing things his way because he's proved to me he loves me. I completely trust him because he sent his, he's loved me first. That's why I love him. I'm not doing things to try and get him wrapped around my finger. He's God. So this couple suffered well, and they find themselves in this incredible position now, this fairly insignificant couple of being swept up into the story of redemption, playing a part in the story of redemption. God does honor them, and they could have said a long time ago, oh, you forget you. This is too painful. And there may be things in your life where you think that God hasn't worked. It didn't work. I saw a little, uh, it was on a member of this church on Facebook yesterday, I saw a little picture of someone saying, and it, I can't remember what the phrase was, but it was a picture of Jesus with a massive teddy bear behind his back. And he was saying to a little girl, can I have that teddy bear? And she was saying, no. And it was something about saying, if you could only see what God can see, he was going to give us something much greater. This couple have managed to faithfully trust God, and now he is including them in the story of his redemption. 
as I said, the theme that came up in Joseph's series, repeating itself here. It's a major theme in the way that God relates to his people. If we use suffering and afflictions to drive us to Jesus, to throw us into prayer, and to depend on God and search his word, what, what is, how does he operate? Who is this God? Then actually we can find our suffering can actually even be a blessing to us. It threw me onto him and I found life. I never would have chose that way, but when, I, when he pushed me that way, I found him. I found him. I found the treasure in a field that's worth giving up everything for. And we can find, actually, the blessing is in suffering sometimes. It could be easy for me to say that because I don't know your situation. You may be sitting there thinking, yeah, maybe you know, when you stub your toe, fair enough. But, Tim, you don't know what I'm going through. And I don't want to make light of suffering. I don't want to make light of what you're going through at all. And that's where perspective really does matter. It really does matter. How big do you think he is? How much do you think he's worth? Because even the grandest, most painful suffering, if you meet Jesus through it, you've met the giver of life. You'll know peace forever. We've just been singing about the one who loves you more than anyone else can love you. Suffering in the right perspective if he throws you to God, you'll one day be able to look back and see more clearly God was doing something. And I found him. So here's this godly priest, this man who has not only committed himself to God and kept a clear conscience before God, while others haven't, but he's done so while facing pain and disappointment, not being able to have a child. And now his name gets drawn out of a hat to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Now, this was not the same as it is in primary school when it's your week to light the candle or your week to ring the bell or whatever it is. It's not, it's not just, oh, it's his turn now. This, and this is helpful for us to get our heads in the right perspective here, this was literally the most important moment of this man's life. It is the most important moment of his life. His whole life culminates at this moment. I get to go into the holy place in the temple. I get to do the incense, the place where God dwells. It's my turn. This is such a privilege. Commentator Leon Morris says this, there were many priests and not enough sacred duties for them all. So lots were cast to see who would perform each function. The offering of incense was regarded as a great privilege. A priest could not offer incense more than once in his entire lifetime. And some priests never did receive the privilege. Thus, the time when Zechariah offered the incense was the most important moment in his whole life. So here we have this scene, as we've read. This godly, righteous, blameless priest on the most important day of his life in the temple, the place where God dwells ready to perform his sacred task once in a lifetime moment. And now a terrifying angel appears. And we know it's terrifying because it says it's classic line that all angels must say when they greet somebody, do not be afraid, which tells us they are terrifying. And the angel says, God has heard your prayers and will give you a son. A son who will be the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. Preparing the way for the Lord, bringing joy as he turns the hearts of men back to God, reconciling the lost hearts to the heart of God, making people prepared for the coming of the Lord. This is, this is it. He could, just, he could die now. That's it. I've seen, 
I mean, there was the biggest moment of my life. And there was an angel there. And God spoke to me. I, it can't get any better than this. This is what my whole life has been leading up to. The hosts of heaven watching on with bated breath. Here it is. The moment that history has been leading up to. God is about to interrupt history and become man. Amazed. It's time after thousands of years. After 400 years of silence. And what was this man's response? How shall I know this? Can you believe it? Isn't that incredible? Every, all the scene was set. What did he expect to meet in there? The, the place where God dwells. And don't you love Gabriel's response? I am Gabriel. I come from the Lord. Sent with a message. In the midst of all the evidence to show that this godly man was coming before God humbly and respectfully, taking God seriously, had done well through pain, devoted himself to God's ways, we find that he's still unbelieving. He's still got doubt in him. When good news was shared with him, with such clarity, with such authority, he's still got it within him to ask a question where the angel says, because you didn't believe. So there are questions asked throughout the Bible. And we'll talk about some of those in a moment. But the, the, the way he must have asked this, the angel knew this is, this is a question of, of unbelief. There's something going on here that is not okay. I am Gabriel. Sent from God. What's going on here? Well, first let's see that this is not uncommon. If you're, a, if you're someone who struggles with doubts a lot, it's, it's helpful to know you're not alone. You're not alone. In fact, many of the greatest Bible heroes doubted, and some of them quite dramatically. Moses met God at the burning bush. A shrubbery was speaking to him. He was terrified at first. It said, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. Yeah, okay, wow. But then when it got to something that was uncomfortable for him, he had the audacity to ask back, uh, no, it's not going to work. It's incredible. A shrubbery was speaking to him. And he's going to ask questions back, disrespectfully talking back to God. David filled the Psalms with outbursts. This man whose heart was after God, it says. This man who knew God intimately, who God had been so faithful with. Yet the Psalms are filled with outbursts of frustration and confusion towards God. We sing, a lot of our songs have got lots of the Psalms in them. But I don't think we're ever going to sing this one. Why, Lord, did you reject me and hide your face from me? You have taken me from me, friend and family. Darkness is my closest friend. Hallelujah. We're not going to sing that one, are we? This is David. His heart is frustrated. And Job asks so many questions that are doubt-laden questions that God finally has to say to him, Job, be quiet. Stop talking like he was a toddler. And yet, these questions are still in here to help us to reflect on what our questions are like. The heart that we bring to God. What about John the Baptist, the one that we're, we're looking at here that is prophesied? He's just coming. He's an important man. Jesus said there's no other man like him. Well, John the Baptist baptized Jesus. 
the son of God, he got to baptize. And what happened? Heaven opened, a dove descended on Jesus, the form of the Holy Spirit on Jesus. He heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved. So get this, he sees a manifestation of the third person of the Trinity while standing in front of the second person of the Trinity and hearing the voice of the, thir- of the first person of the Trinity. And yet later on, he doubts whether Jesus was the Messiah. Wow. We can go through so much that we think, I will never doubt again. It could be the next day. It could be in the presence of an angel. Yeah, not so sure. Peter saw Jesus walking on the water. He thought it was a ghost. He was terrified. It was a stormy night. It was the fourth watch of the night. Peter had been up. He already knew there was a storm going on, the wind and the waves crashing. And he sees Jesus. He says, Jesus, if it's, if, if it's you, let me come to you. And Jesus says, come. So Peter, having already seen the wind and the waves, it's not a surprise to him, gets out of the boat, starts to take steps on the water. He's taken steps on the water already. He can see the one who we've just heard created the wind and the waves in front of him, standing on them. And, some, and something happens where he sees what's around him and begins to believe the lie that this is bigger than the one standing in front of me. And he starts to sink. Unbelief starts to take grip. Even though he's already taken a step on the water, even though when he got out of the boat, he could already see the wind and the waves. Perhaps we know the recognition of, uh, actually, my circumstance hadn't changed that much. I've just started to let my emotions take hold of me. I've just started to let fear come in. I already knew that it was going to be tough. Perhaps you're going through things where you think, actually, I need to come back to the truth that I believed before. I had a friend at school, and I was at his house once, and him and his dad said to me, if God's real, why doesn't he turn up at the World Cup final where billions of people would see him on TV? Fair question. Fair question. But I think we're starting to see through these examples, God spoke to somebody face to face, and they still doubted. God was on the water with somebody face to face, and they still doubted. Job was speaking with God and still doubting. David was close to God's heart and still doubting. That's much more intimate than just watching something on TV. Perhaps the best account of doubt in the Bible in terms of actually quite comical is in Matthew's description of the disciples as they watched Jesus ascend back to heaven. It says this, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Think about it. They are watching Jesus float to heaven. They're watching him in front of their very eyes, floating up, ascending to heaven. And some of them are saying, I'm not sure about this. Isn't that amazing? What are they th- there's, a, there's a wire there, I think. What on earth are they thinking? Isn't that amazing that this reflects to us, I don't think the problem is on God's side. How is it possible after seeing his miracles, hearing his teaching, receiving his love, seeing this invasion from heaven, and now seeing him fly up to heaven to still be saying, I'm not sure. And so we come back to Zechariah. And I said before, Zechariah and Elizabeth were God-fearing people. They thought of God as big. They saw God as big. They did. 
But this encounter with Gabriel shows that, that Zechariah still thought God was a smaller God than he is. He still had put limitations on God. He still was unbelieving. He's still, yeah, God, you're big, but do you know best? Do you know what you're doing here? Do you? Still asking questions. Zechariah displays the common heart of man. It's so important that we, we let God's word and God's spirit correct our hearts. Because as we had in the worship time and understanding, his desire is to love us. And when we believe lies, we're saying, I, I don't need that love. I don't need that authority. I don't need that oversight. I don't need that father. Can you imagine? People around the world desperately desiring a father. And yet, when God says, I am the father, we're easily saying, mm, I want, can I just, yeah, I, I'll leave that, thanks. Isn't that incredible? We all fall into it. We make excuses. We put up hope. We put our hope in all sorts of things. We lack faith. We give in to fear. We let go of God's promises. We lack passion and zeal. It's unbelief. Believing lies. And at the root of unbelief is a fundamental deficiency in our vision of God. The God we imagine in our hearts is not the same God who has revealed himself through his word. We make a God up in our hearts. It's easier for us to swallow. We swap the true God for a much smaller, simpler version. We assume that the God behind it all is only slightly better, slightly bigger, slightly more clever than I am. So we expect him to behave in ways that we can easily understand and follow. And when he doesn't, we get surprised. We get shocked. We get disappointed. You're not supposed to do that, God. I want you to do what I want you to do. And we end up with what we could call a pocket God. A little God that we keep in our pockets, nice and safe. And Western Christianity often encourages us to have a domesticated view of God. It focuses on the practicality of faith. God becomes a means to our happiness and our prosperity. He's going to get me where I want to get. He becomes a cheap explanation to unanswered uh, questions. And the best means to the life that we want. And if we're not careful, we can come to church. We watch God TV. We listen to all sorts of Christian input. Simply looking for warm, fuzzy feelings. Motivation or, or comfort and encouragement. And obviously, of course, it's right that we find those in God. But not just find those in the gifts and the, and the peripherals, but find them in the giver. Find them in him. He's come that he may give us life and life in abundance. We're not made to have a pocket God. We're made to encounter the living God who stands beyond time. And his presence is indescribably glorious. That's what we're made for. And Zechariah comes into the temple where the presence of God is supposed to be. And it's almost like he goes, I didn't expect God to be here. Where do you expect him to be then? We've got to come to this place where we realize uh, a pocket God is, it's like having a, here we go, here's pocket God. <laughs> and we just have him comfortable enough for us. And we just be able to say, God, I've got an exam this week, can you help me? 
like that Mr. Bean episode. You put him on the, put him on the desk. About three of you know that. Um, or maybe, you know, I've got an interview. Will you help me? Thank you. Or maybe, you know, whatever it might be, we come, we, maybe we polish his head. Okay, good, thank you, God. We put him in our pocket. And then sometimes you go to church and you hear this, what's that? Oh, I want you to lay that relationship down. Oh, just stay in there. Just stay there. I don't want to hear that, thanks. I want you to give sacrificially. No, 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 you stay in there, please. I want you to reject that promotion. You know it's dodgy. No, no, shush, shush, shush. I want you to forgive that person. Not even going to answer that one. You know? I want you to love your enemies. Just be quiet. This is our pocket God. And ironically, the pocket God feels easier to believe in. He acts in ways we understand. He explains oh, the ways that we can explain. He acts in ways we can predict. And he even acts in ways we can control. Get in there. Be quiet. He never offends us, so we're not embarrassed about him. And sometimes we even tell our friends about him because everyone should give this a try. Makes you feel a bit warm and fuzzy. But in the end, do you know what? Pocket God cannot sustain our faith. He cannot account complexities of creation or the mysteries of suffering. You'll not grow in passion, devotion or worship with pocket God. He is too small. Philosopher Evelyn Underhill says, A God small enough to be understood will never be big enough to be worshipped. Isn't that true? A God small enough to be understood, never big enough to worship, it's like you've completed him. No, I've understood. I've got my head around him. Yeah, I get that. And, I, and I'm honest. I have to be honest. Sometimes that's the, I, I kind of get this stuff. I, are you kidding me? How arrogant that could be. Zechariah in the temple, I get this. I'm going through the motions. I'm trying to put this thing in and do my, I mean, it's a big deal for me. But, you know, I've understood it all. And then God interrupts. What? No, I wasn't ready for that. Cannot sustain our faith. Furthermore, a, a small view of God will always stop us from seeing how wicked our sin against him actually is. Who cares if I sin against his pocket God? He's there for my benefit. He's there for my comfort. He's there if I want him. No, if I understand the greatness of God, I understand the terrible nature of my sin of rejection towards him. And even more, I understand the delight and the incredible nature of his grace towards me. Pocket God's nice and fluffy and kind and yeah, okay. He's complete weed. He's under my control. The real God is never under my control. As we heard in the worship, his grace is always sufficient for me. Pharisees thought they could control God and use him to manipulate so they could be top dogs. And when they saw that forgiven prostitute who came to Jesus and wept at his feet and washed his feet with her tears, they scoffed, they laughed, and they mocked. They didn't understand. But her worship her passion, her zeal and joy came from a place of knowing that God has forgiven me. God has overwhelmingly given me his grace, taken away all my sin. She who has been forgiven much 
we'll be able to worship much. Author J.D. Greer says, If we want to think properly about God, we must first stand properly humbled before him. The posture of humility is a prerequisite for faith. If we're just believing in a God who we can control, it's faith that will fall. And without a sense of God's magnitude, we'll not be even asking the right questions, let alone getting the right answers. Our God is lion and lamb. As we've heard today, he is gentle, he is caring, he is intimate with us. But he's also awesome. He's also the God of creation. As Solomon says in Proverbs 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We can't know him if we don't fear him, if we don't revere him and honor him. It is the beginning of the knowledge of him. All comes first, and then wonder and intimacy as we embrace the gracious love of this infinite, mighty God. We must get these two things together. There is awe, and there is intimacy. You find that you're growing true biblical faith as you hold on to the two. He's not my buddy. He's not there to stroke me. He's not there just to make me feel warm and fuzzy. He is God, mighty creator. And what is he also? Crucified saviour. This is where we find he, that kind of faith in that, that can actually carry me through. That can get me through the storm. Pocket God can go away. <laughs> Tim Keller says this, if our prayer life discerns God only as lofty, it will be cold and fearful. If it discerns God only as a spirit of love, it will be sentimental. I don't want just sentimental nature. With God, I don't want just sentimental prayers. And then when, when it comes to the thick of it, I've got nothing, nothing to stand on. And also, I don't want to just be terrified of this cold God who just wants to get me. We've learned today that actually he's quite aggressive about loving you. That's what you should be more aware of, his aggression, not, not to get you, not to judge you. His aggression is, I want to love you. I'm pursuing you. I've come after you. I had to come in human flesh to make a way for you. I'm violently... Involved with loving you. I went to a cross. It took violence for me to love you. That's how committed he is to loving you. It's when we behold God as he really is. He is creator and crucified. He is lion and lamb. He's awesome, terrifying, and yet wonderfully abounding in steadfast love. It's the phrase used again and again to describe him. In the word, this is where we become trusting, passionate, confident, zealous worshippers who have a faith that can endure and can expect God to move. This God doesn't fit in our pocket. He doesn't answer to us and meet our expectations of what we think he should be like. The disciples that saw Jesus ascend and doubted, that was quite comical. Terrifying as well in some ways. But the thing is, they're confused, aren't they? They're asking questions still. Questions like this. If he's really the Messiah, why are we still in captivity to the Romans? He hasn't overthrown them. Surely a Messiah is supposed to overthrow the Romans. If he's the Messiah, why is he leaving when there's still sick people around? Has he really just given us the task of telling every nation about him and then left? I, I can't see him anymore. I can't hear him anymore. Constant questions can come up to us. And it's our way often of hiding. Constant questions. 
Jesus' behavior made it hard to keep believing. But here's good news for us when it comes to doubt. Doubt in the Christian life is normal. You're not on your own. And I don't want to encourage you to doubt. But it can be helpful if you process it in a helpful way. Doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the very real realities of life. In that sense, they can help you to see where you've put your expectations on God arising out of what you think he should do rather than what he has said he will do. If I'm going to meet the realities of life and think, I, I have no faith to stand on here. I, where's God here? He's not doing what I thought he would do. And then it should push us back to say, I've got to doubt my doubts. What's going on in my heart here? What did I expect? What am I holding him to ransom for? No, God, I want to come back and say, God, I, I thought this was how it worked. Help me to doubt my doubts. Help me to understand what's going on in my heart right now. And turn your doubts back on yourself. Question where they've come from. What has God frustrated in you? Where is he showing you? Now you're putting your faith on something else, actually. You're trusting something else, and you can see how empty that is. You're trusting in sentiment. I'm not sentiment. I came in human flesh. I died on a cross. This is real. This is not sentiment. I've ascended into the heavens. People watched me, and they still thought, hmm. It's not sentiment. Don't trust in that. And Gabriel came and brought good news. So we're just going to look to finish off here at the good news of John's ministry. John's ministry was to be a ministry of turning people's hearts back to God. To prepare people for Jesus who would reconcile people to God. His ministry was to turn hearts. God's not satisfied with ears alone. A big crowd He's not even satisfied with minds that just get the theology and think it's interesting. He's, he's looking for hearts to be turned. He's looking for people who say, I put my trust in you. I put my weight on what you say. My heart is turned to you. It's a moment for you to be honest. Where, where is your heart? Where do your questions come from? Perhaps... You know, maybe you're a questioner. You just think, I actually, I'm questioning all the time. And maybe it's like one of those cartoons where you see, you know, one door opens and behind it, there's just another one. And there's just another one. There's just another one. And you're constantly putting up more questions. And if you're honest with yourself, you know, it's not about my questions not being answered. If they were all answered, if God came at the World Cup final, I would probably ask questions. I, I don't really want the implications of what it would mean if God was my God and I wasn't my God. If you're honest enough with yourself today, perhaps you recognize, yeah, I do ask questions and it's mostly a hiding game. I don't want to believe. I don't like the implications. I'm hiding behind my questions. Perhaps it's more this. I don't understand I just don't understand. I do ask questions and I, I don't understand. How can I believe something I don't understand in? Well, can I encourage you? Keep, keep listening to the Luke series. Keep coming. Keep asking the right questions. But when you get the answer, stand on it. Don't just say, yeah, that's fine. I've got another one. Okay, that was answered. Yeah, I've got another one. Stand. Give God the benefit that he's due. He wants to love you. Stand on what he's given you. He wants to change your life. 
what peace you're missing out on that we sang about, on recognizing, I don't need to know. I don't need to know everything. He knows all. It's been so helpful for me recently to just see the, what it is to have the faith of a child. I'm thinking, God, I don't understand this. I don't understand it. Jesus was on the boat when, the, when a, different, a different storm. We know the story, many of us. And he was asleep. And the disciples saying, why are you asleep? How can you be asleep? We're going to die. And he is at utter peace, asleep. Because he knows my father's got it in control. I don't have to know everything. My dad's got it under control. He's in control of the wind and the waves. If you're somebody who said, I just constantly, I, I'm, I, I'm anxious. I'm concerned about this. Maybe it's theology. Maybe it's something that keeps coming back to you. I don't get it. I don't know the answer. You don't have to. You trust him. You follow him. And you get peace in that. You cannot worship a pocket God. You must give in to the real God, creator of heaven and earth, saviour, faithful friend. And this God says, Jesus says, one day he will come again and it will be unexpected. He uses the phrase, it will be like a thief in the night. He will come and it's not expected. Think about Zechariah in the temple. It was unexpected for him to meet an angel there. Bang! Oh, and an angel appeared. He wasn't prepared. John's ministry was to make a people prepared for the coming of the Lord. Is your heart prepared? Are you still sitting on the fence all the time? What if he comes this afternoon? What if he comes tomorrow? What if he comes in 10 years and you're still sitting on that same fence? And you're still asking those same questions? I feel today God is saying, this is an opportunity. Get off the fence. Trust me. Stop hiding behind questions. It's like those people who ask those stupid questions like, can God make a boulder that he can't lift? It's not a question that you actually want answered. You're just saying, I'll keep that in the way. Thank you very much. I've got God checkmate. No, you haven't. You're a fool. God wants to love you. Get over these silly philosophies and these going around in circles and just say, God, I don't understand it all. But I do believe you came. I do believe you died. I believe you rose again. And I believe it was for my sake. And start to walk out. Trust in him. I want to give some of you an opportunity to do that even now. Perhaps the band would just come and I'm going to pray. And, uh, and then I'll ask a question of you. If you think, do you know what? I've asked enough questions. And I recognize today I'm hiding. They aren't real questions. I just haven't wanted to give in. Today's a day you can give in. And it's not a bad thing to give into, the love of God. It's the best thing to give into. Father God, we just thank you that you are a relentless pursuer of hearts. God, we turn away from you. We reject you. We throw all sorts of insults at you. We use your name as a swear word. We, we hate you calling us to do things which are good for us. And you love us. I just want to say thank you. I want to sing with a smile on my face. I want to know the God who loves me is not somewhere out there walking alongside me. Father, I pray right now for those who need to take that step, whether it's just to say, I am a believer, but I've been asking questions that have halted me from moving anywhere in God. 
today's the day I want to stop doing that. Or maybe it's those who just said, I need to take the plunge and believe in Jesus with my life for the first time. God, would you just make this a moment like we spoke about at the beginning, Zechariah's moment of a lifetime. This could be that now. This could be the moment you interrupt hearts now. That, that, that person's life and their history is divided like Jesus came and divided history. Before I wasn't a believer, before I wasn't in him, now I'm in him, now I'm safe. I'm loved, I'm adopted. Lord, let it be right now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Just with every eye closed in your seats, if you just know I've come to the end of questioning, I'm frustrated with the fact that I'm hiding and I'm missing out on God's love, I've never put my faith in Jesus. I want to tell you, it's, it's serious. You're saying goodbye to me. And I've had this, I've had to say goodbye to Tim Virgo lots of times. But it's easy as ABC. You admit, I've, I admit I'm a sinner. I'm, I admit I need help. And B, you believe in Jesus that he died and rose for you and see you commit to following him. If you want to do that today, can I ask you, as eyes are closed, just to raise your hand really high for me? You just think, I'm not, I'm not doing so well just asking questions all the time. I need to put my trust in him. Just want to look carefully. Just the second category, you're already a believer and you're confident of that. But you know, I live in doubt all the time. And I want to turn from that. I want to trust him. Could you just raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, those that raise their hand, feel free to put them down. Father, I want to pray for those who raised their hand there. Just And those that haven't, I'm sure there are others that haven't as well. And they know this is true for them. Lord, would you just help us to recognize I'm missing out here. I'm slamming a door on the greatest love there could ever be. And help us to do what it takes to trust you, to lay ourselves down. give our lives to you to walk forward in faith bless us in Jesus name thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich please feel free to make a copy of this content but please do not edit the content in any way